please open your Bibles with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning submitting ourselves to your word. Your inerrant, inspired word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would open and enlighten our hearts, that we might clearly and rightly understand. We ask that you make each of the characteristics in this passage ours. Give us unity for your glory, not unity only in the superficial things, but unity in Christ. Let the thing that draws us together more than anything else be the gospel. We trust that your word is good, that your word is able by your spirit to break stubborn hearts, to soothe troubled souls, to bring life to that which is dead and give growth to that which you have made alive by your great grace. We pray that you would do just this here this morning. We pray that by your word preached by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would be glorified and that you would meet us here in your word and change us, that you would now prepare our hearts and teach us to love your law. Help us to submit to every word of Scripture. Work in us by your word a delight for you. Lord, make us new. Help us by your grace to set aside everything that stands in the way of hearing and obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen. Too often, we make the Christian life about ourselves. And by too often, I mean whenever we do it. The Christian life is about God and His glory. Sinners being saved is about God's glory. And each step in our sanctification, our being made more like Christ, is for His glory. How we interact with one another as Christians is about God's glory. Encouragement is about God's glory. Comfort from love is about God's glory. Affection, sympathy, forgiveness, repentance, all of it is about God's glory. Every part of the Christian life is about glorifying God. And in order for any of these traits to be present in our lives, we must humble ourselves before God. And in this humility, put down what we think are our rights. Rights to respect, rights to a life of ease, 
rights to having things done our way. And not only our way, but our way really fast. C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame, in his book Surprised by Joy, talks about a kind of joy that is really a longing for heaven, like a memory of a memory passed down from Eden. A longing that is almost more desirable than having the desire satisfied. Kind of like a thought or idea you have to come at sideways because if you come at it straight on, you'll push it away. Like when, you, when you're trying to think of the name of someone, but you know the harder you think about it, the further away it gets. This joy, this longing for true joy, Lewis is talking about, is a desire that will not be fulfilled until heaven because it can't be. But the gospel is as close as we can get to it this side of heaven. When we see and understand and dig into the gospel by God's grace, we start getting tastes of the glories of Christ. And the more we taste, the more we want. To steal another idea from Lewis, the gospel is like an onion, except as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. To stay with Lewis just for a little longer... One of my favorite books, a book that brings out this longing deep in my gut, a a longing for heaven and the things of Christ so deep that it hurts, is Lewis's The Great Divorce. I've read this book at least once a year for probably 10 years. It is a story full of beauty and vivid illustration of of a heaven more real and substantial than anything we have here experienced. It's a let's suppose story about a bus trip, a visit from hell to the outskirts of heaven. Lewis is not, and I'm not saying that there is a second chance for heaven after you die. That's beyond the point of the story. But what Lewis does say in this story is that given the chance, if people could choose to leave hell for heaven, they wouldn't. There are many reasons for this, and all of them boil down to pride and selfishness rooted in unrepentant sin. One of the characters in this story rejects an invitation to journey further into heaven because he is so concerned with getting his rights, of getting everything that is due him. This man who came on the bus is talking with someone from heaven who came to help him on his way further into heaven because the visitor is so unsubstantial that he can't even walk on the grass of heaven. They've been talking for most of a chapter when, one, when the one of heaven asks the visitor to stay one last time. And the visitor's response is this. So that's the trick, is it? shouted the ghost, outwardly bitter. And yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in his voice. It had been entreated. It could make a refusal. And it seemed to it some kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some nonsense. It's all a click, all a bloody click. Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned then go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go sniveling along to charity tied to your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. And it was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten, that's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Blast the whole pack of you. And in the end, still grumbling, but whimpering also a little as it picked its way over the sharp grasses, it made its way off to the bus. I read this and I I, I, um, use this as an illustration because this is the exact opposite of what Paul tells the church in this text we're looking at today. 
I think it's helpful for us this morning because of how easily we fall into this kind of thinking and how sharply it contrasts with the gospel applications for Christians called together in the church. The context for what we'll look at today comes from the end of chapter 1. Obviously, chapter 2 comes after chapter 1, so we'll look at chapter 1 to get the context for chapter 2. Philippians 1, 29, For it was granted, that is freely given as a gift, to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To suffer for Christ is a gift. Be encouraged by that. Sometimes we suffer because we do something dumb. But there are times in the Christian life when you will struggle for the sake of Christ. Take heart. Paul goes on to say in in verse 30, the last verse of chapter 1, be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is by this point a seasoned Christian and suffers and fights for Christ all the time. Don't be afraid, said God's word, says God's word, because this is granted to you. It is a gift. Remember how in Acts, when the apostles were beaten for the faith, they went away went away rejoicing at being counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. It is a gift to believe in Christ and to suffer for him. This is the attitude we should have. We should rejoice in our suffering for Christ. We should not be surprised by it. We should see that this as the gift it is. For two reasons. First, because everything that comes from the hand of God is a gift. And second, because as Paul tells the Romans in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So with that, we come to verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So, therefore, because of the gift of belief and the suffering freely given to you, and that you are engaged in the same conflict as Paul, that is the defense of the gospel, if this is the case, and you are all in for Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, if you are in Christ with both feet, these things should be evident. Paul's not doubting these things, that, that encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. He's not doubting that these things are there in the Philippian church. But he does want to cause those reading this letter, including us, to pause and reflect on whether these qualities are evident in their lives. The Philippian believers, and by extension all believers, must make sure they continue to progress in the absolute critical area of love for one another. One of the ways that the progress of love shows itself is in the way we as Christians relate to one another. If we are really in Christ, then these things should be evident. If they, they, they will be evident. We have these responsibilities in Christ. We have the responsibility to comfort each other in Christ. More than that, to encourage each other. And let this encouragement lead to unity, togetherness in Christ with affection, 
You know what affection means? It means you like each other. I'm sure you've heard it said, I might have to love them, but I don't have to like them. This verse right here tells us that if we are Christians, we are to do both. This both leads to and follows from true fellowship. The fellowship or participation or most properly unity produced by the Holy Spirit should cause unity to actually happen. Let me say that a different way. By the Holy Spirit, we, that is all true gospel-believing Christians, have been made one body, that is the church, and because of this, we are all partners in the gospel. How much more true should that be for each individual local church? That we share one another's lives in love and comfort and encouragement and affection. Recognition of this theological truth, that we are one in the Spirit and thus partners, and this this partnerness should find expression in our lives. We should see it here. The existence of this tenderness and compassion among us will make us, will make the unity that is being called for in the last part of verse 1, participation or unity in the Spirit, a normal and expected thing. This kind of unity is so unnatural in the world. It is not normal for people to have big disagreements and then come back into good, healthy relationship with one another. In fact, it's looked on as weird, partly because it is weird. It is weird and unnatural for reconciliation to happen. Any real, lasting reconciliation and forgiveness is just not possible on a human level. I'm convinced of this. Real, lasting forgiveness, comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, or any kind of reconciliation is not possible, no matter the intentions, without Christ. Without the Spirit working in us, helping, to, helping us to follow the example of Christ, which is only made possible by the work of Christ, without the Spirit in us, it is not possible. Without the Spirit, the Christian life, and especially the Christian life together, is not possible. Christian unity takes prayer, it takes humility, it takes the Holy Spirit. Picking up in verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul was joyful in the work of the Philippian church and and, in what they were doing. But no church is perfect. In this church, there was some amount of discord. He was possibly speaking of a conflict between two women in the church that he mentions later in the letter in chapter 4. Paul wants the church to leave the discord alone, to clear the conflict and complete his joy. How does he tell this church to complete his joy? By being of the same mind, literally minding the same thing. This call for unity in the church, this brings to mind a pair of oxen or horses pulling in the same direction. Mind the same thing. And for the same thing to be of any good, it also has to be the right thing. What is the right thing? What would this look like? What should be the central focus of the church? It does no good to all be pulling in the same direction if the direction is right off the nearest cliff. Paul's call for unity is a call for unity in the gospel. 
It's a call for the Philippians to use all their different gifts toward the same end, the glory of God. All of this work in unity is to be bound together by love. Not mushy, empty love, but fruit of the Spirit, Christian agape love. This same love leads to unity with oneness of mind and oneness of soul. The application of this is easy to see and hard to do. Brothers and sisters, let us have unity. Let us both give and receive forgiveness. Not once, not only for hurts accumulated over the past 50 years or 10 years or 3 years or 3 months, but continually. This is not a one-time thing. If you have sinned against someone else, do not be proud. Reconcile. If someone has sinned against you, do not be proud and expect them to figure it out on their own. Go to them and help them understand how to fix it. Reconcile to each other in love with affection and sympathy. Go to them and tell them, you have sinned against me in this way. I have been hurt by this specific thing. And then forgive them and tell them you have forgiven them. If I know I have hurt you, I will ask for forgiveness. But if I don't know, there is nothing I can do, and that is selfishness on your part for not telling me. You are depriving both of us, me from asking for forgiveness and reconciliation, and yourself from giving forgiveness. If there's any good in being together in Christ, then do this. There is a unity that comes from being brothers and sisters. Don't let there be discord. There is a a place for every Christian in the body of Christ. Every part is useful. Every part is important. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is the call to humility, the call to be selfless. Do not, not to count yourself as worthless, but to consider others above yourselves. This humility is the photo negative of the man from the great divorce, wanting his rights. When we take our eyes off of Jesus and his great gospel and look to ourselves and what we deserve at our right to be offended, at our right to have our songs sung on Sunday morning, or our right to hold a grudge, hear me clearly, when we selfishly make it, whatever it is about us, we are sinning. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of conceit. The literal translation is vainglory, which is a great word. It's a word that means exactly what it sounds like, glory that is vain or worthless and empty. Do nothing out of selfishness or for what you can get out of it at all costs. Instead of that, in Christ, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Selfish ambition and seeking after vainglory is anti-Christian. Humility is anti-world, anti-flesh. The Christian attitude should reveal itself in humility. Humility was just as countercultural in Paul's day as it is now. The ancient Greek concept of a free man is a man with total autonomy, absolute self-determination, one who can do as he pleases when he pleases as in deciding that his wife no longer makes him happy, so it's time to trade her in for a new one, or determining what gender or sexuality suits his fancy at the time. The ancient Greek and the current American attitude is that humility is a defect, not a virtue. 
The idea of subjecting yourself or what you want to someone else is seen as weakness. Humility is a thoroughly despicable concept in the age of do what makes you happy, of absolute personal preference and self-determination. As a Christian, as someone who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, someone who has faith that Jesus did what he said he would do, that he prophesied, was prophesied to come hundreds of years before he came to earth and put on flesh, for someone who believes that Jesus was fully man and fully God, that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice in order to bring us back into right relationship with God, for those who have faith that Jesus rose again and is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, humility is our calling. Mankind is not sick. Humans are not almost there, and they just need a little medicine from the gospel to be made whole. Fallen man is not even drowning, just keeping his nose and one hand out of the water, needing a life preserver tossed to where he can grab it. Hear me, church. Men and women are dead in sin, at the bottom of the sea with no hope in ourselves. To be made alive, God in his grace reaches all the way down to the depths, pulls us out, and brings us, back, brings us to life. And once we are made alive in Christ, we are to become more and more like him, like Jesus. But here is good news upon good news. The same power that made us alive in Christ remains in us. It is promised to us that the work that was started in us will be finished. Because of this, because of conversion, because of the Holy Spirit in us, we can be humble. Humility is not a false view of yourself or others. Humility is to consider others better than yourselves. This doesn't mean that we have a false or unrealistic view of our own gifts as compared to those of others. What Paul means is that our consideration for others must come before concern for ourselves. This would go a long way to resolving disharmony. Humility is a great gift. To be able to look at the concerns of others first, to humbly count others more significant than ourselves is supernatural. It can only come from the Holy Spirit at work in us. Humility and deference to others can cause us to grow in ways that are not possible when we get all that we want when we want it. Paul continues with his instruction for humility in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul doesn't say, have absolutely no regard for your interests and become a yes-man doormat for everyone. But also, says the word, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. When we do this in light of the gospel, when we care for each other mutually, there is little room for disunity. You might be saying, humbling myself... And asking for forgiveness is not something high on my to-do list. Going to someone else and telling them they have hurt me will only make it worse. Why should I have to do that if there's no guarantee it will make me feel better? Paul was a master teacher. Sometimes as a parent, I tell my kids to do something and before I'm even done, I get a why. Why do I have to do this? I'm sure I'm the only one to ever experience this. Paul tells the church what to do, and before they can even get to the why, he answers them. Because Jesus did it first, that's why. 
We are to be humble in love and consider other people's interests because Jesus submitted to the ultimate humbling. The rest of this morning's text is often referred to as the hymn of Christ. This is the classic Christological passage in the New Testament dealing with the Incarnation. In it, Paul depicts Christ's example of service in poetry that was likely sung in the early church. This text traces Christ's preexistence and incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. So with that, we come to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This same mind, you know, the the one I mentioned earlier in verse 2, being intent on the same purpose. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another reason says it more clearly, I think. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus. Having the attitude of Jesus, then act like Jesus. Not on your own strength, but in Christ Jesus. Not alone, but together. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, through whom God created the universe, this Jesus who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do not let familiarity with this idea allow this amazing truth to pass you by. Jesus really was God. John 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. Jesus really was who he claimed to be. He is co-eternal and equal in substance with God. That's what the word form means. It is not something that will change, but it has the idea of an outward manifestation of the essence. Jesus wasn't just a man claiming to be God, but truly God the Son who took on flesh. And in spite of this, even when, even though Jesus is God, the Son, from eternity past, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. R.C. Sproul says, Christ did not exploit his status for personal gain. Unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus was not trying to become God, nor did he capitalize on the privileges that were always his out of self-interest. He does not exercise his deity at the expense of his people. Rather, he exercises his divine prerogatives for the benefits of his church. Christ did what he did for his church and the Father's glory. Paul moves then from the pre-incarnate Christ to the incarnation. There are two main thoughts here about Jesus here in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. Jesus made himself nothing. He humbled himself. This doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. He was still fully, truly God. And he had every right not to humble himself, not to take on flesh and suffer. But he did not hold on to this right. Instead, he emptied himself and became poor. He became weak. He became able to and did suffer. And in the end, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all who would trust in him. When Jesus emptied himself or denied himself of something, he did not empty himself of being God, but of the manner of existence as equal to God. Alistair Begg says, God became man not by subtraction of divinity, but by the addition of humanity. 
Christ did not lay aside his divinity, but took on something in addition to his divinity, that is manhood. Christ became a genuine man, but different than any man before or after, because he did not sin, and in fact had no sinful nature in him. Jesus really was God, and he also was a real person in history. He really did walk the roads of Judea as a real physical person. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ was not indebted to us so that he had to come and die a death that we should all have died. He did not owe it to us to come to earth and have us kill him, using the breath in our lungs and the strength in our arms that he gave us to nail him to a cross. But because he did, those who believe and have faith that he is who he says he is and did what he said he would do are made right before God. They are justified in his sight. When Jesus did this, emptying himself and taking on humanness, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was not only that Jesus became fully man, but he went further. He was perfect in every way, perfect in his obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus was obedient unto death, the very worst kind of death. A death reserved for the worst of the worst, for the scum of the earth, for slaves and foreigners. Jesus suffered a death that was to the Jews a sign of the curse of God. In Deuteronomy it says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That, brothers and sisters, is what it looks like to adopt the attitude of Jesus. Not, no being in the history of the universe humbled himself more than Jesus. No being ever fulfilled the Father's will more perfectly, and no being ever deserved more and got less. No one ever had more rights than Jesus. No one could ever have demanded to get what they deserved and been more in the right. And yet Jesus did the opposite. He emptied himself and then humbled himself and then obeyed his Father perfectly. We as Christ's followers are called to do the same, to humble obedience, to following after the example of Christ, not because this obedience will save us, but because when we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus' obedience and by that same grace we are called to obey. If you are here this morning with something against a brother or a sister, lay it down and let us all pull in the same direction. Because this is what we are called to do, because Jesus did so first and because it brings God glory. Look at what happens next. After Jesus, in humble obedience, emptied himself to the point of the worst kind of death, after he does this, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At this point, Paul can't help himself anymore. He breaks into praise that because of this, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him that name that is above every name. There is no name higher or more exalted than Jesus. After Christ obeyed God, he was exalted to the highest possible place, super exalted. All, the, all that he had laid aside in the incarnation was restored to him and much more besides. So that at his name, at the very name of Jesus, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Who will bow? Everyone, everywhere, from every time will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow at the name that belongs to Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in recognition of his sovereignty. Every knee means every knee. 
from all times and places and people. This is not universalism, that the belief that everyone will be saved in the end, eternal punishment is real. And this bowing is a universal acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. Both a bending knee and verbal confession of Christ Jesus' sovereignty. A universal acknowledgement by every being, even enemies. Everyone means everyone. Either you will do it with an with now with unending joy, or later with resentment and unending despair. Every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father is Paul's closing doxology to this incredible Christology. He has never lost sight of the divine order and the grand order in which the incarnation of Christ must be viewed. Recognition of Christ's lordship fulfills the promise and the purpose of the Father so that it brings glory to God. This picture of Christ's humiliation and subsequent exaltation was intended by Paul to encourage his readers to an attitude of Christ-like humility. If they were to be identified as Christ's followers, they must demonstrate his characteristics. It, is also, it also contained the reminder that victory followed humiliation and that God's glory will ultimately prevail. Christians, we are called to humble love, to humbly consider others, to look to the interests of others, to lay down our rights and what we think we are entitled to. We are called to be of one mind, to advance the gospel. We are called to this because Christ did this first. He gave up the rights that he really was entitled to for our sake to the glory of God. Christian, you are called to glorify God in all that you do. Church, we are called to glorify God by humbling ourselves and looking to the interests of others and to be obedient that Christ may be glorified and that the Father may be glorified through him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would even now bow our knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That with our very lives, we would live this out to your glory, trusting that your grace would sustain us in our work. We pray that we would, by your Holy Spirit, live out what we have seen in your word this morning. That we would live together in unity, pulling in the same direction in unity and love. When we pray that we would count others more significant than ourselves, we pray that we would love one another with true Christian love, looking out for the interests of each other, for our good and your glory. We pray that as a church, we would be a witness to the goodness of Christ, so that others wonder what is different about us and be drawn not to us, but to you. We pray that if there are any here this morning who do not know you, that you would bring them to yourself for your glory. Father, let all our lives be pleasing in your sight. Let your mercy preserve us in holiness and innocence that we may live pure lives in truth, humility, and justice for your glory. In Jesus' name.